Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure, and in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 19 and the final episode of season one. In today's episode, I speak to Dr. Waitman Bjorn, a senior lecturer in history at Northumbria University. Waitman has done a considerable amount of work on the Wehrmacht and the Holocaust on the Eastern Front during the Second World War. I spoke to him about what motivated German soldiers to participate in these actions. He spoke to me from his office in Newcastle upon Tyne. Waitman, welcome to the Combat Morale podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the German army on the Eastern Front? Uh, right. So um, I uh, am a graduate of West Point, United States Military Academy, um, and I served in the army, uh, in the U.S. Army for five years. Um, and uh, when I got out and decided that I wanted to go to grad school, be an historian, um, I had a really, I, I knew I wanted to focus on the Holocaust. And I had done work as an undergraduate on um, Nazi doctors in Asia program. Um, and I, I had a really wonderful advisor um, in Christopher Browning who um, did what really wonderful advisors do, which was recognize, um, you know, what was a sort of available in the field or should be, you know, open in the field where, where work needed to be done. Um, and was able to say that, you know, that there's been a lot of work on medicine, Nazi doctor. Um, but what is it that interests you? And I, I, I told him I'm really interested in sort of what motivates perpetrators, what makes people get involved, things so incredibly awful. Um, and he suggested, you know, have you thought about looking at the, the German army? Um, you know, particularly particularly at sort of the individual level as a sort of a social history, thought that perhaps, you know, given my background, that that might, I might be able to bring something new or interesting to that. And so that's kind of how I got into to this work, which is, which formed um, my first book, uh, which called Marching in the Dark um, about the Wehrmacht in Belarus. So yeah, that's kind of a long, a long way around of saying how I got into this particular topic. You know, it, I'm still interested in that idea of, of how people get involved in genocide as well as, you know, how people survive it. And so this was, the military was in this book, one way to sort of, for me to, to scratch that itch. As a- So when we talk about war crime on the Eastern Front, how was this defined in international law? And what exactly were the nature of these crime that um, Axis forces, certainly on the Eastern Front, have been? Been renowned for? That's a good question. I mean, so the one of the justifications that the Nazis use for um, a lot of their criminality is that um, the, the Soviets had not signed the, the relevant convention of the time and therefore weren't um, weren't covered or protected under them. Um, of course, Germany had signed those. So, um, you know, pretty much all of the war crimes that it committed are still considered war crimes. It's not a, it, it's, it's not sort of, it doesn't get you off the hook to, to say the other side hasn't signed it. Um, and the the gamut, I mean, of of the various crimes that are committed, I mean, everything from sort of your more traditional war crimes, if you will, in the sense of uh, murdering prisoners of war, uh, murdering commissars, uh, you know, sort of crimes against civilians, all the way up to and including um, complicity in genocide, um, mass starvation, um, and these kinds of things. So it, it's really a a very that's my dog. Sorry, it's a very um, a very broad you know resume, if you will, of, of crimes that. That take place there. I mean, we can talk in more detail, um, but you know, there's and there are a lot of reasons, which we'll, I think we'll get into about about why that takes place. But uh, the military is involved, um, you know, in in war crimes at the individual level, at sort of uh, 
the tactical level and even all the way into um, sort of the international strategic level with economics and, and forced labor and use of slave labor in the munitions factories. I mean, it's just it's it's sort of shot through with with criminality in that sense. So what sources did you use to explore the Wehrmacht's crimes in front? Um, so for, for this book, um, I was uh, really interested in trying to figure out, you know, how these individuals um, and these individual units took part. And um, I started with thinking about using um, using letters, um, but I discovered that while uh, German archives have mass quantities of these collections of soldier letters, um, they're very often very poorly organized, so it's hard to search. And um, it's very difficult to find um, what you would need, I think, which is a series of letters from the same person um, or, the, or from people in the same unit um, over time, you know, that can give you some sense of what's going on. And um, in addition, I discovered, you know, that, um, you know, these soldier letters are very often quite mundane in what people are talking about. Um, I mean, I, I know that my letters when I was deployed are, are as well. I mean, it's it's mainly sort of what are we doing in the sense of, you know, things are cold, things are hot. Uh, you know, I'd like something. I'd like you to send me this, that or other thing from home. Um, you know, it's very, very little of um, even if they were committing atrocities, it's very little of we're killing Jews today. Um, and if it is, it's it's very rarely. And this is how I feel about it. Or these are my motivations for it and that kind of thing. So um, I ended up um, moving into looking at um, German legal investigations and court case. And what the nice thing about these documents is um, they contain a, a vast array of, um, sorry, uh, a vast array of, of sources um, from, because you have, you have prosecutors and investigators that are um, conducting these investigations. And they are bringing together survivor testimony. Um, they're bringing together uh official documents, um, often in multiple languages, um, and they're interviewing perpetrators um, or or people who I would consider perpetrators, though the, the law may not. And so I was able to find, um, for this book, I was able to find uh, five cases that take place in what is now Belarus, which was Army Group Center Rear at the time. And they all took place in roughly the same time period, and they all had a fairly significant you know, legal record or investigation that had um, taken place. Um, and so those provided a, a really, really good source base, then augmented, of course, by um, what little survivor testimony there was, oral histories, um, maps, military documents from the archives in Germany, um, you know, and a variety of other sources. That So that sort of formed the, the basis. for. And what's been the prevailing historiography around German armies, war crimes on the Eastern Front? Obviously, we, we're, we're well aware of what the SS and, and Nazi Party officials do. But how, how have historians regarded sort of the role of the Wehrmacht? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it's and it's one that... that that deals a lot with um, history and memory, really. Um, and if you think about it, there, it's really it's really a, a memory issue that follows sort of two parallel tracks. Uh, you sort of have what the scholars are doing um, and what public perception and public memory are doing. Um, and, and at the points where those things intersect, you have sort of some really important um, moments in, in sort of German history after war. From a, you know, from the beginning, the, the Wehrmacht sort of gets um, a leg up on this, this idea of the clean Wehrmacht, the clean Wehrmacht myth, the idea that the Wehrmacht is sort of not, not involved in, in the worst crimes of the Nazi state, because at Nuremberg, the SS is termed a criminal organization, um, while the Wehrmacht is not, which means essentially that, you know, if you're a member of the SS uh, of any sort of rank, um, that is sort of a criminal association. Um, the Wehrmacht doesn't receive that um, that categorization. Um, I mean, obviously, the, many of the high-ranking generals are tried, but um, it's not sort of officially termed as criminal organization. So that'll allows um, the Wehrmacht members themselves
themselves to sort of distance their organization from the SS, which then gets saddled in many ways, and, and you know, not altogether incorrectly, with the guilt for the Holocaust and sort of the worst crimes of the Nazi state, and lets the Wehrmacht kind of skate by. Um, and this is, of course, helped by the Allies, who, um, both the British and the Americans, who are very interested in learning lessons about how to fight the Soviet. Um, and so they allow the, the Nazi generals to sort of come over, you know, write their memoirs, tell us what you what your experience was like on the Eastern Front. And of course, um, you know, they come up with very sort of um, sanitized version where they leave out, you know, a lot of the things that they did to enable or participate in the Holocaust and other uh, genocide. Um, and of course, you know, you can see this even just in the titles. You know, I always I always laugh the, at the fact that, you know, um, we have von Manstein who writes a book literally called Lost Victory, you know, as if as if that's something to be mourned, you know, um, you know, this kind of a lost cause belief. Um, and this carries on uh, you know, into the into the 60s and 70s, um, where you do have historians, you know, uh, particularly German historians who are, you know, who are beginning to uncover this, you know, starting with the, the highest levels and showing that these Nazi generals were not not these sort of apolitical military officers, but, and, you know, were very much supporters of, of the regime. But a lot of that remained sort of locked in the scholarly sphere um, and didn't intersect with the public memory. Um, and then you sort of have, uh, and of course that that continues on um, in, in a scholarly vein with more and more uh, work being done to uncover sort of the, the criminality of the Wehrmacht. Um, there are sort of two points that are kind of important. Um, in the 1970s, uh, the, the miniseries Holocaust comes out um, and you know, has a really big impact in Germany. Um, and allows, it opens up a little more dialogue uh, between sort of the scholarly sphere and the public about um, the Nazi state in general, the crimes of Nazis, and the German people's sort of complicity or relative complicity therein. And then secondly, uh, and perhaps more importantly for this topic, in um, the early 90s, there, uh, a, a, a tobacco magnate in Germany um, you know, puts together a, a scholarly exhibition on the crimes of the Wehrmacht. Um, and it travels throughout Germany and it raises just incredible um, amounts of emotion and response, both positively and negatively um, from the people, because it, it lays out in sort of excruciating detail with letters and photographs, and diaries and everything else, um, the complicity of the Wehrmacht, um, of, the, of the army in particular, but also the other branches in a way that's, that's much more difficult to write off or look away from. And so you have, you know, you have even some veterans at that point or their family members saying, you know, I'm not a war criminal. And conversely, you know, you have others saying that they are war criminals. Um, and one of the things that makes this, I think, so difficult for the for the for Germans is that, you know, there were 17 million members of the Wehrmacht at some point during. And so unlike the SS, which had a much smaller uh, membership, particularly the SS involved in camps, um, that's a lot of people. So that's a lot of fathers and brothers and, you know, um, uncles, etc. So that once you start sort of um, flinging accusations of complicity around and hitting the Wehrmacht, you know, you're, you're hitting a lot of personal memories in a way that you're not with uh, with the SS and um, and so with with 95 you start to see um, a, a much larger explosion in, in the literature of all the different ways in which the Wehrmacht um, is complicit um, in the Holocaust so I think you know that's that's kind of a short overview to this and we're still we're still discovering things um, you know there are one of the and I live my life in scare quotes so this is not nice but one of the nice things about studying the Holocaust is that it, it's such a monumental and, and geographically expansive event that there's just always 
there are always new things, uh, you know, that people are looking at. Uh, one of the newer things that came out um, was this this Einsatzgruppen that was allegedly or supposed to be attached to Rommel in the Africa. Um, that was, you know, it was basically planning to to murder the Jews of North Africa. And had Rommel been militarily successful, we would be talking about, you know, a the genocide of the the Jews in North Africa carried out under his sort of oversight. So, from the work you did on Belarus, what was the what was the extent and nature of German war crimes um, in the units that you looked at? So. It, this is one of those interesting questions because it, it touches on um, one of the critiques of of all of our work, essentially, who work on on um, trying to parse out, you know, who is perpetrator, who are perpetrators, and who are not. And this is the idea of, of representativeness. You know, what I, I just mentioned that there's 17 million people that were in the Wehrmacht. Um, you know, and so it's it one of the challenges is to make this claim of of you know how do you you draw sort of a generalization or a larger conclusion about such a, a varied and diverse group of people. Um, so the units that I looked at um, tended to be, you know, second line division, right? They're 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 not, you know, elite, but they're also not completely sort of um, reservists and useless. They're sort of in the middle. Um, so they're made up of of very much sort of ordinary people for the most part, but they're also not sort of completely ad hoc units. Um, and you know, one of the things I think that that I discovered as I was doing this research um, is that. The most important element was opportunity, because as an organization, um, the Wehrmacht was primed for participation in a, in a wide variety of atrocities, up to and including, you know, genocide in the Holocaust. Um, from an organizational standpoint, um, from a leadership standpoint, from even sort of the the background of the soldiers and the social psychological standpoint, the motive existed, um, and it was what what sort of determined whether or not atrocities took place was quite often if units were put into a position where they were being asked this kind of thing. So if I was to make a, a, a somewhat sweeping generalization about the, the German army in the East, I would say that um, as an organization, it was ready at most times to be complicit um, and to be a perpetrator in the Holocaust, um, and that it was it's it was sort of the the opportunity that sort of limited. Here. And if you look at the various crimes, you know, not including just the, the murder of Jews, um, for example, the Commissar Order, um, Felix Romer has done a really wonderful, um, quintessentially German um, book on the Commissar Order, which was the order um, to execute out of hand all political officers from the Red Army that were captured. Um, and he basically went through all the documents to show that the level of compliance in this order, which is clearly in violation of the all of the laws of war, both customary and, and legal at this point, um, was carried out by most of the units, which is important because, again, one of the whitewashing elements that takes place after the war um, is the idea that, oh, yes, we got this order to kill all, all these commissars, but we didn't really carry it out. You know, we sort of, we faked the funk on it and didn't really do it. But what Romer lays out in, in excruciating detail is that they did, um, you know, and so that's a most, that's a most unit. Um, I would also suggest that most units that were engaged with Soviet prisons of war um, were guilty of war crime uh, just because of the massive, essentially a genocide within a genocide of Soviet prisons of war. And then, you know, all the associated atrocities against civilians of requisitioning food, carrying out reprisals, um, you know, executing anyone that, as Hitler said, looked disconce at us. Um, and then, and that's not even including, you know, touching on the Holocaust. So I, I would characterize um, the, the depth of sort of criminality as, as quite deep. So let's look at the motivation of why soldiers participated in these events, starting with the leaders and the officers. What was their involvement? And did all officers actually willingly participate or follow 
the orders that they were given. Yeah, I mean, so this is, um, you know, it, it's a good place to start because ironically, you know, um, we we sort of have this cliche of the German army and the Nazis as sort of this incredibly draconian um, organization where, you know, orders are orders. Um, and what's interesting, and we'll, we'll see perhaps in a minute, is that that has to work then both ways. So if someone is ordered to do something or they order their soldiers not to do it, um, then that also is a, uh, you know, it, it's, I think if, if we're characterizing leaders, um, you know, it, it makes a difference which level of command, of course, that we're talking about. Um, the generals, who very often like to portray themselves as sort of very much above the political fray, were, I would say, by and large, quite political um, in the sense that at the very minimum, they supported enough of what the Nazis wanted to make him, make them sort of fully complicit. Um, Manfred Messerschmitt uses the term um, a commonality of aim, which I think is a good way of thinking about it. You know, that, that these generals um, didn't need to be, you know, as virulently anti-Semitic, for example, as Himmler. Um, but there was plenty, you know, in sort of the Nazi buffet of choices uh, that that interest them. You know, the, the, the building of the military, um, the fight against Bolshevism, you know, frankly, the opportunity to fight a war. Um, you know, all of these things for for many, many high ranking folks, quite, um, quite appealing. Um, and at a very minimum, you know, sort of the actions against Jews and, and the, the racial policies were not deal break for these guys. And, and many of the, the high ranking generals were, were essentially, there's been some work done on this as well, um, were receiving bribes under the table uh, from Hitler and from the Nazis, essentially for their for their silence and support. Um, you know, as we start moving down the, the chain towards the lower levels and looking at motivation for um, participation in war crimes and in the Holocaust and genocide, things start to get a little more muddled. Um, you certainly have uh, the the true believers, you know, the, the virulent anti-Semites um, who are happy to participate. You have um, sort of the professional officer type who, you know, may not agree with the order, but sees it as his responsibility to carry it out. Um, and then you can move into, you know, the, the opportunist who sees this as a way to advance career, um, the person who lacks the moral fortitude to stand up and say no. Um, and then all the way at the other end of the spectrum to officers um, and men who refuse, you know, outright to, to carry these things out. So if you think about it as kind of a, a bell curve with at one end, the sort of extremely motivated true believers, you know, who will carry out atrocities whenever asked. And at the far other end, those who are actively refusing to dissipate, and then everyone else sort of sorts out in the middle. Uh, that's that's a good way, I think, to look at, at motivation across the board, um, as well as with the sort of ordinary men. Turning to the ordinary men, and what was their sort of motivation for it? How much were they relate? Were they motivated by their cohesion with their colleagues, ideology, the orders of their leaders, or all their duty to be a good German soldier? What what did you find was the main sort of driver for the participation of sort of ordinary Germans in these crimes? Well, I think um, in the in the nineties. Perhaps a little bit earlier, there was a debate within Holocaust scholarship um, between sort of ideology and situation. You know, best exempl best exemplified by the Goldhagen-Browning debate. You have Goldhagen who's sort of arguing that the Nazis and the Germans in particular, you know, were particularly suited towards anti-Semitism. They possessed a special kind of anti-Semitism. Um, they were incredibly strongly motivated to kill Jews and Hitler 
sort of gave them the the ability, the moment, sort of let let them loose is one one perspective. And then on the other side, you had Browning's work and others who argue that no, there the social psychological pressures were really what drove a lot of participation. And I think now we're at kind of a synthetic moment where we sort of recognize how these things feed off of each other. So it's a symbiotic relationship between what we believe and what we do. In, in other words, what we what we believe influences how we act, but often how we act, what we experience, what we do influences how we. So if we're if we're trying to sort uh, perpetrators, particularly in the German army, into categories, um, you know the the same spectrum applies. The cohesion element is a really interesting question because what I discovered, which is in line with what a lot of other you know great scholars have also discovered, is that um, this this the peer pressure of of being in a military organization had an outsized influence on whether or not someone would pay. And you can see this in a, in a variety of, of examples. Um, one of these is literally when asked, a lot of soldiers who are perpetrators um, would say, you know, well, I, I did this because I didn't want to look weak in front of my my colleagues, my comrades, um, or even, you know, as as brutally frank as if I didn't do it, I knew that my buddy was going to have to, I didn't want to have to actually work as it were. Uh, so there's, there's that peer pressure element, which is also indicated, which is interesting, you mentioned sort of the gendered aspect. Um, and if you look at how a lot of these guys, and I found this really interesting when I was going through the, the document, you know, even after the war, when they have no need to do this in the 60s and 70s, they portray the, those who who did refuse to, to participate or claimed to refuse to participate, would very often couch it in terms of weakness. You know, I'm I'm a family man. I didn't have the stomach for it. I couldn't do this. I couldn't shoot women and children. You know, I'm a soft and um, these kinds of things. And I, I found that to be really interesting because while for some people that may have been the, the the end of it they may that may have been the only reason I felt like for a lot of them this was also a way to cover more moral objectioning it but it's interesting that they choose this particular format and it's almost a script because you can read this in lots and lots of different people description if if you claim to be weak and if we if we gender that sort of as a non-normative masculine right if, if normative military masculinity is sort of tough guy killer then this would be perhaps gendered more feminine in that sense um it allows them to return to the fold afterwards in a way that a moralistic objection doesn't. So it's quite easy for their comrades to accept them back at the table drinking beer when they're they can just say, well, you know, Hans is a he's just a really nice guy and he just couldn't he couldn't handle it. You know, and that's too bad, but we still remember him and he's a good guy. Versus if Hans says, This is this is an outrage, this is a crime. How can you do this? You know, this is evil and morally, you know, bankrupt and horrible. You are you are making an accusation against others, against your comrades, and that's and I think it makes it it made it makes it very difficult for you then to return to to this group, which in sort of the vast expanse of the Soviet Union in the context of war is really the only social support network that you have. So I, th- I found that to be a very prevalent and convincing argument for motivation. And it's important to point out that there are a good number of orders exhorting uh, sort of ordinary soldiers to be more violent, to be more ruthless, which, you know, orders aren't written for no reason. And if they're if they're having to disseminate those kinds of commands, it does suggest that, that at least some of these soldiers need to be convinced and that this is something that they should be doing. And another element that I think actually 
actually enables participation and something that I saw throughout my study was there always seemed to be a cohort, relatively small cohort of the usual suspect who could always be counted on to when asked, you know, hey, we're going to go on a Jew hunt is what they often would term this, which they knew what that meant. They were going to go murder murder Jews. They would volunteer for this or or they were people who the leadership knew would have no problem if, if you tasked them with doing. And I found this to be incredibly powerful because by not by these people being repeatedly asked or volunteering to do these type of tasks, it takes the onus off the remainder to have to make any decision because they're never asked. It sort of sorts itself out so that those who are unlikely to participate or have expressed reluctance aren't asked any. And therefore, what you re- what you require to sort of stop participation is much more of an initiative taking by the majority who aren't at least gung-ho about doing it rather than putting someone on the spot and saying, shoot, and them having to say yes. So the presence of this sort of core group of per- perpetrators, I think, actually exacerbates the situation um, by allowing others to participate in ways that are more comfortable for them, if that makes sense. What about the argument that uh, many, many soldiers and many accounts I've read suggest that um, they were, quotes, forced to do or participate in these crimes. And if they didn't, they would be shot, you know, for not following orders. Is that a viable or is that a reasonable defense um, to explain why they did things? Well, I think um, like a lot of generalizations about the German army during the war, there's a kernel of truth in it, which is that the the, the German army was um, notoriously draconian in its treatment of its soldiers. I think uh, this is a number that's sticking out at me and I hope it's correct, but you know, they execute somewhere around 30,000, I think of their own people um, for various reasons. But But what's missed in that argument is that none of those reasons involved killing, at least not directly. And so one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know is that as far as as historians know, um, we have not discovered any example so far of a German soldier or SS person um, being put up against a wall in the way that these men often claim would have happened and shot uh, for refusing to participate in killing. And neither have German had German defense attorneys, you know, back when these crimes are being prosecuted, because that would have been the perfect uh, alibi. You know, if, if you can show one instance where this actually happen, then this level of duress as defense takes on a whole new uh, meaning and a whole new relevance as as a legal strategy. So they're looking for this as well. We have no evidence that ever took place. We do have evidence that that some military members were executed uh, for doing things like helping Jews escape, um, for encouraging, particularly for encouraging other others to not participate in the Holocaust. Because now you're looking at sort of a mutiny um, aspect. You know, you're encouraging others not to obey orders, and that's that's particularly. But for the individuals who are who just sort of say, "I will not do this," um, the repercussions are are few and light. Um, and and I think you know for a couple of reasons probably. One is there already in Russia. They're already on the Eastern Front. So that that as a as a threat, which was used, you know, in, in Germany, for example, if you don't behave yourself, you get transferred to the Eastern. That didn't really apply to them. They're already there. But I think more importantly, again, because of that cohort that was willing to do this, I think for the German military, it was probably deemed counterproductive to really pursue in any formal sense, those who are refusing to carry out these kinds of, I mean, if you refuse to advance against the enemy, you know, or to take that hill or you desert, you're going to get shot for certain. Um, But it's a much more difficult prospect to have a soldier say, I'm refusing to shoot that 
pregnant, that naked pregnant woman. And if you, if you follow this sort of down its logical outcome, if, if it were any other kind of military discipline issue, you know, the military, the Wehrmacht was not particularly interested in putting this guy in front of a judge or a court martial and, and punishing him for, you know, disobedience when, you know, he's saying, I'm not going to, I had trouble killing, you know, an unarmed pregnant woman. You know, that, that the, the optics of that and the documentation produced from that, I think was recognized throughout as just not worth the effort uh, with what it could, with what the negative uh, outcomes of that could be. And so most of the responses tended to be insults, uh, you know, characterizations that we can all imagine, words that are um, epithets and insults and slurs, uh, questioning someone's manhood, etc. But as far as actual punishment, uh, they were very rarely punished. And I suppose I was I was always wondering whether, you know, the German army during the Second World War represents, you know, um, a, a, an aberration that, that people are socialised into, into fighting and, and doing these appalling things. Can it happen to any army? I mean, is the German army exceptional? Are the Germans notoriously evil? Or are they just ordinary? people who are, who are in a certain political, cultural, military situation. Is this a warning from history in a way, in some way, in another way? I, th- I think it absolutely is. Um, I think it's, it may be comforting, um, but I think it's very self-serving to view uh, the Nazis and the German army in this case as an, as an, um, an abomination, as an outlier of something that, you know, is just so beyond the pale that it could never happen to us because it allows us to sort of then become very smug and comfortable in the fact that we're not Nazis um, and that therefore this is not a problem that we experience because history shows that we do continue to have this problem. I mean, you look at the, the prevalence of, of various kinds of war crimes in Vietnam. Um, up to and including war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, naturally, there's a difference in in the genocidal context. You know, the, the the war crimes, at least in the modern era, that for example, the American military has been involved in, I don't think rise to the level of genocide. Uh, though certainly, we could look back to the American West and see some clearly genocidal policies there. I do think that the structures and dynamics that led to both war crimes. And complicity in genocide for the Wehrmacht are are replicatable and are, are universal in a certain sense. Well, what I mean by that is, you know, we talk a lot, we talked a lot in the military about command climate, um, organizational culture, um, organizational climates, which applies to any organization really, from a university to a business, where leadership combines with tradition uh, and combines with pressures of the organization to create a climate of what is acceptable. What kinds of behavior are rewarded? What kinds of behavior are punished? You know, what what the self-image of the organization is, you know, what does a what does a policeman look like? What does a policeman do? How do they behave? How do they act? How does a professor behave or act? How does a soldier behave or act? Um, These are all mediated by long-term history, short-term history, individual leaders making pronouncements, as well as the, the, of course, the community and the population that these people are coming. And what you see with the the German army and and, in the Holocaust and in war crimes in the East is a thoroughly dysfunctional environment that valorizes those who are the most brutal, rewards those who are the most brutal, makes it clear from the very beginning, if you look at the criminal orders, for example, that are issued at the beginning of the war, um, before the war, where it says, in, for punished for crimes that you would be punished for elsewhere, you will not be punished for in the East. You know, all of these things can together clearly set a tone and a tempo for an escalation of violence um, that, that filters down 
you know, all the way to the lowest level. We used to say in the army that, you know, you, you make policy by everything that you do and fail to do. Um, every, every, you know, if, if you walk by something, you've just made that policy. Um, you know, and so if you don't stand up and say that you're, that thing you're doing is wrong. And conversely, if you say that thing you're doing is right, in both instances, you are making policy and your subordinates are watching that. And they're trying to, they're always trying to figure out what, what they should be doing. And that's a, that's usually a good thing. And if you're, if you're modeling good behavior, um, you know, then that's what, what you should be seeing amongst your subordinates. In the case of the, the Wehrmacht, of course, the institution as a whole is not modeling good behavior. It's modeling a sort of racially based uh, zero sum gain war of annihilation with, with a genocidal component uh, relating to the Jews and is in every instance, which is why I get back to what I said at the very beginning in terms of motive versus opportunity. The motive is ingrained um, at an organizational institutional level. And the majority of the leaders are confirming and reinforcing that. Though when you do have that, the the outliers who you know stand up, particularly in the leadership positions, you don't find their soldiers committing atrocities. So it works, it works both ways. But I think you know it's 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 quite relevant today if you look at again, if you look down at the level that I looked at in the book at the kill the kill squad in Afghanistan, for example, American unit that went around murdering civilians. Um, a lot of the dynamics the interpersonal social dynamics are the same. You know, you have leaders in that case, I think it was the brigade commander who essentially said, you know, we're not doing this hearts and minds thing. I want you to be war fighters. I want you to be killers. Um, and I, he bears some responsibility for, for these people going off, you know, off the, the chain here and, and committing atrocities. I think you see the same thing in Vietnam where things are normalized that are criminal. And so I think there is a lesson for us all here and not just in the military. And I mean, I think it's for any organization, you know, organizations can develop these dysfunctional cultures, whether it has to do with sexual harassment or racism or discrimination. And, you know, they, it's, it's obviously individuals are responsible for their actions, but organizations are also responsible for individuals' actions because they signal what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work? Uh, so the the book I mentioned um, that that this is based on is called Marching into Darkness: uh, The Wehrmacht and the Holocaust in Belarus. It's um, it was published by Harvard University Press, but it's available wherever you buy your books. Um, I'll make no comment about where you should buy your books. Um, it's available obviously in all the formats. Um, there's also, if you're interested more in the the sort of ethics piece. If you go to, if you Google, I believe it, Ordinary Soldiers Project, um, it's, this is a project that was based on my research, uh, but co-authored with the Holocaust Museum in uh, Washington, D.C., as well as with um, the United States Military Academy. There's a basically a case study and educational module that contains a lot of information about, you know, from the book, but also in the context of exploring um, ethical decision-making and organizational cultures. And you can find that um, on the, on the webs on the Holocaust Museum's website, and also on the Center for Holocaust and Genocide um, at West Point in pursuing that. Waitman, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.